Okay, Mark. Mark 15. Open your Bibles. We are in Mark 15. Um, <clears throat> there, there's a few maybe new faces. L- let me explain a little bit of what we do. Basically, we've been teaching through Mark this whole year. We started in September, and we are finishing next week, actually. Um, what we do is we walk through the text verse by verse, so, and we, have two, we, we break up the night into two parts. The first part is somebody just walking through, through the text, explaining what's going on, what, what is meant, what's, what's the background, what's the literary context of, of this. Because here's our goal. Our goal is to understand what the author intended. So, so we want to spend some time just walking through that, those verses to understand what the author meant. And then we'll take a small break, and then, and then the next part is, is more of a 20,000, 30,000-foot view of something from the, from the text that helps us see a bigger picture of God or His purposes or and the gospel in, in, a, in a different way, how this text helps us see those things. So that's how we break up the night into two parts. And so I'm doing the first part. We are going to be in um, 15, starting in verse 33. But before we jump into that, I, I, uh, I remember hearing the story of, of this, this, this bus ride full of people late at night in the city. And it was one of those things where nobody wanted to really be there. It was late, but everybody needed to get to where they were going. And so everybody's sitting on the bus, and, um, and, and, and people are just minding their own business, just anxious to get home, silence, all that. The next stop, a dad and his two sons come on, come on the bus. They, co- they come in, they sit down, the, uh, the, the boys sit in one seat, the dad sits right behind, right behind them. And almost immediately, these boys just start making noise and fighting and causing ruckus and commotion and, and then you know before they before you know it something happens and they hit hit the person in front of them and then they're they're flinging all over the place and causing all kind of all kinds of commotion and and so everybody around is like looking around going who whose kids are these and hey the dad what's the dad doing he's right behind him why isn't the dad doing anything and who's going to say something to the dad like that's what's wrong with kids today. The parents aren't involved. The kid, you know, you can just see all the people just kind of giving these looks, like, like really, you're gonna just let, and and the dad's just looking straight down, not saying not saying anything, not doing anything. And and this goes on for long enough to where the guy sitting next to the dad, everybody's looking at him, going, dude, say something. You're the guy. And he's like, really, I gotta do this. So he leans over. Uh, excuse me, sir. Can you, can you get control of your kids? They're kind of causing some trouble, and and he he kind of snaps out, and he's oh oh I'm sorry I'm sorry, and he says, we just left the left the hospital, and their mom just died. And and I love I love this story, I don't know if it's true, um, but I love this story because it reminds me that sometimes just one piece of information. Just one, one bit of information can change your whole perspective. Have you, ever, have you ever seen something or looked at something or, or judged a situation and then find out one piece of information and realize, oh, okay, I totally, I totally missed that. I totally got that wrong. This story that we're reading tonight, we've, we've, been, we've been at the, well, in the Passover week or in the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life, for quite a while now. We've been 
we've been dealing with Jesus' arrest and, and crucifixion and now death for a couple weeks now. And, and, but what, what ha- what's happening tonight with Jesus dying on the cross is, is one of those things where, um, similar like with God, there's always, there's always something going on. And it's often different, different than we think. Like, like, God just seems to work at a different, in a different planet than we do. He seems to think different than we do. He, his ways are just not like our ways. And so with, with this cross, or with the, with the death of Jesus, um, you see witnesses, the, the disciples, soldiers, and they, they don't know exactly what they see, yet some of them catch glimpses of something. And so I want to jump in. Uh, I need somebody to read. You read it last week. Um, can't, you, can't, you can't hog it every week. <laughs> Alec, read, read 33 and 34. Okay. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very good. I meant to say, this is how you say that, but you actually did pretty well. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. All right, so, so it's, it's the sixth hour. So we know that some of your translations probably say noon, right? Others, others say sixth hour. What we believe, you know, they're, they're kind of operating a different time scale um, from when their day, their day begins, when the sun goes down. And so at the sixth hour is, is for them is noon, and, and, the, and the ninth hour is three o'clock. Right? So this is right in the middle of the day. And darkness comes over the land. Luke says the sun stops shining, actually in Luke's account of this. Um, so we don't believe this is like a dark cloud that covers, covers the sun and, and, oh yeah, it was kind of dark. No, we, we believe something supernatural happened. Something out of the ordinary happened. In fact, this isn't the first time this kind of thing happens. It happens in the Old Testament. And to kind of give you a, a summary of, of usually what's surrounding darkness Usually there's mourning, or judgment, or a new beginning. Um, darkness does not indicate the absence of God. God oftentimes is using darkness, is causing darkness, and, and, and his, is accomplishing His work. And all of these things are really true of, um, of this particular case. And then I came across um, Amos 8. Look at, uh, turn to Amos if you can find it. Good luck. Uh, if you can find Daniel. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos 8. This is what Amos 8 says. This is in the context of um, a coming day of bitter mourning. Is kind of what is happening in, in chapter 8. In verse 8 and 9, or 9 and 10 says this. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning of an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. So, so Mark records this, this darkness taking place um, right in the middle of the day as, as if to signify these things. And then Jesus says this odd thing. He says it in, um, not Greek, not Hebrew, but Aramaic. And 
and uh, it's such, such an interesting thing, phrase. There's, there's been a lot of kind of debate about what, what's going on here. What would Jesus be saying? How does a member of the Trinity experience um, being abandoned by another mem- member of the Trinity? Like, how does that happen? Um, is Jesus in this moment, moment blaming God for leaving him during his like, greatest need? Is he upset with God in this moment? What's, what's happening here? Well, knowing what we know about Jesus and, and his ministry and how everything seemed to be pointing to this moment, like everything seemed to be pointing towards him coming to the cross and, and coming to die, that, that's the whole story of, of Mark, is that Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah is king, and the king and the Messiah must suffer and die. That's like, to sum up Mark, that's it. The Messiah is king, and, and the Messiah must suffer and die. And so this has been... Jesus has predicted this. This has been a long time coming. And so knowing what we know about Jesus and his ministry, there's really just two good options. The, f- the first one is that Jesus is experiencing judgment and, and wrath and separation from God for the first time. That's, that's one option. That, that here's, here's how this works. In the same way, last week, in the same way that, that Jesus took Barabbas' place, okay, if you remember the story from last week, Barabbas got let free. He was a murderer. He was a, led an insurrection. And Jesus really hadn't done anything other than claim some things about the temple. And so they, they wanted him dead. And Barabbas is who really deserved it. So Jesus took his place and, and, and took his punishment. And then ultimately kind of received the judgment that he deserved. In the same way he did that for Barabbas, he did that for all of us. Except this is the first time he's experienced this kind of wrath and this kind of judgment. And he, and he experienced for, for all of us in that moment for the first time. And so you have, um, you have this verse we, we mentioned last week, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So, so like it, it, one option is to understand this is like Jesus is experiencing this for the first time. The section, second option is that Jesus is using this as a teaching opportunity. Like Jesus is trying to teach something, trying to um, explain something, trying to announce something with this. So here's what I mean. Turn to Psalm 22. Keep your finger in Mark 15. Turn to Psalm, turn to Psalm 22. Okay. Psalm 22. I wish I had it on the screen, but I don't. So, somebody read Psalm 22, if you find it. First verse. Go ahead. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. So, the exact same thing. And in, 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 in those days... They didn't have to read, whenever, whenever a rabbi wanted his students or wanted someone to know um, the verses that they're going to talk about, all they really had to do is mention the first verse oftentimes. Most, most of these Jewish leaders, for sure all the Jewish leaders, and most of the people had a gr- greater grasp of, of the Bible, had a lot of it memorized, more so than, than you could imagine at an early, early age. And so they could just say the, say the first verse. By saying the first verse, they're essentially announcing the whole chapter. 
And so here's, here's what Psalm 22 says. The first one is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 6 says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Turn back to, if you have your finger there, 15, Mark 15, 29. It's saying the people are wagging their heads at him in, in mockery of him. Um, back to 22, Psalm 22. Verse 8, He trusts in the Lord. This is what they're quoting. Quoting these people wagging their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, if, for He delights in Him. And again, that's the same kind of thing that, that they said of Jesus. Look down at verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted with, within my breast. Uh, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for, and for my clothing cast lots. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That's exactly what Jesus is leading to. And then the last verse, they shall come and proclaim His righteousness to all the people yet unborn, that He has done it. Some translations say that it is finished. Um, and, and in Mark's Gospel, this is the only thing that's recorded that Jesus says on the cross. If you put all the Gospels together, there are actually seven different sayings. Hey, Jeff. And, and you have... You have this one is the is the last one in Mark, the only one in Mark, but in um, in some of the others, it, it, Jesus actually says it is finished, mm-hmm. and so it, like like one of the last things he says is it is finished. So, what what do I mean by he's teaching something? Well, he's most likely he's announcing because I'm, I'm I'm the righteous sufferer. That that's David a thousand years before Jesus. A thousand years before Jesus, six hundred years before crucifixion was invented, David is writing these things, and Jesus is claiming to be the one he's talking about. So which is it? Is it that he's experienced this, this wrath and judgment? Or is he is he like trying to use this as an opportunity one last time to proclaim who he proclaim who he is? And and I think there's a third option, which is that it's it's both. Um, the, the ninth hour is is the hour of Jewish prayer. This is like a time, this is a time set aside for, for, for a time of prayer. And I think it's interesting that Jesus, right at the ninth hour, chooses His prayer to be um, a very strategic prayer, a prayer of lament, a, a familiar prayer, and, a, and, and kind of a classic example of anguish. And so Jesus isn't just um, quoting this to teach something, I think he certainly is announcing something, but he's also experiencing these things. It says he was mocked. It says his strength was dried up. His hands and feet were pierced. His garments were divided. And so this is, this is a true prayer of lament and anguish um, for Jesus, written a thousand years before. So God has certainly been orchestrating these events. Um, people standing there witnessing this, they, they certainly would have known Psalm 22. Um, they would have known... Um, and they would have maybe been able to help possibly see the connections, 
but a lot of them chose not to. So read 37, uh, sorry, 35 through 37. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it, gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Okay. So, um, instead of seeing in faith what, what, what Jesus was proclaiming, um, they chose to continue to mock him. This has been kind of a theme for them. And they, they're saying, oh, wait, 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 look, he's, he's, he's calling Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. Since he can't save himself, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And, and the irony is that, that, that Elijah has already come. I mean, Jesus asked these religious leaders one time, John the Baptist, was he, was he Elijah or not? And the leaders froze. Because they said, if we say he's not Elijah, then the people are going to riot because they, are, they actually believe, he, they really believe he was. But if we say he is, then we have to acknowledge him as a prophet and we have to acknowledge that the, he came to announce Jesus. And, and so they didn't say anything. So the irony is that they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to mock Jesus and, and the reality has he's already come. And what did they do with him? They, they, they chopped his head off. They, they beheaded him. And so they killed this, this, this Elijah that they're claiming may come and save. So read 38 through 41. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Okay. So this next line, verse 38, is kind of a random statement about a curtain being torn in two. Um, what does that have to do with the death of Jesus? What does that have to do with the forgiveness of sins? What, how, is this, how is this related to the crucifixion? I mean, the crucifixion happened outside of the city gates, uh, on this hill of Golgotha. This, the, this, this curtain that he's talking about is inside the temple, which is inside the city, quite a, quite a ways away. And what would this statement like, have to do with, with what's going on? Well, we'll find out later. Um, I'm going to leave you in suspense, but we'll keep going. This, this next thing is a centurion's profession of, of Jesus being the Son of God. This is a very rare statement in, in the Gospels for someone to claim Jesus to be the Son of God. Um, oftentimes, it's said of Him as the Son of Man, or Jesus claims that of Himself. Um, God Himself had, had announced Jesus as His Son at His baptism. and There's actually a lot of correlation between the death of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus. You can, we don't have time to get into that. But so think about this Roman soldier. His job was to fight for Caesar. His job was to um, live for Caesar. In fact, a statement that oftentimes made in the first century was, "Caesar is Lord." And they really did. Be, they believed because Caesar claimed to be. They believed that he was divine. They believed that he was God. And and so here's this Roman soldier, and it says he after witnessing his death which he just got done crucifying him. He just got done executing him. 
And normally this is a, this is a, a criminal. And Jesus watches him, his, watches him die and is able to say, I think he's the son of man. I think he's the son of God. Like this is, this is not a normal person. Mark is showing us that for those who have eyes to see, that he can, they can see. And then there's these women at a distance. It's interesting to note that um, the distance they follow behind, it says that just like Peter did. James assumes that the reader would know the names listed there. Um, that, that, that James and, and Joseph and, and Salome, like, in other words, you can go ask those people. That's who is, it's, it's Mary and Mary, you can, the son or the, the, the mother of, you can go ask them. They're still alive. In Mark's gospel, this is interesting, in Mark's gospel, the only people to minister to Jesus are the angels in the wilderness, Peter's mother-in-law, and these women. So, so it, it, might, it might be true that women are a lot like angels. Just, I said it might be, but anyway. <laughs> but I just thought that was kind of interesting. That in three, three different cases, someone is ministering to Jesus, and, uh, and this is one of them. So read, read 42 through 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Okay. So, Joseph of Arimathea, he wants the body. He wants to take the body. Now, he's, he's a part of this council that just agreed that Jesus needs to be crucified. What part in, in that he played, I don't know. Whether he was a part of, of that or not, we don't know. Um, we know most likely it was held in the middle of the night. Actually, we know it was held in the middle of the night and not, that not everybody was there. So that there could be a chance that, that Joseph was, was for Jesus and wasn't invited to that council, and who knows. But we know that the Romans didn't care about people dying and staying on the cross for days and days. They, they, they thought it was actually helpful for them to, to prove and to show their power and their intimidation um, of who's in charge. Um, but the Jews had this thing. They didn't, want, they didn't want anybody on the cross overnight. And so especially going into a Sabbath. And so what they would do is they would, they would ask the soldiers to bring them down. And so the soldiers would go by, if they were still alive, and break their legs. This is how they would speed up their death. They would break their legs so that they can't hold themselves up, and ultimately they, they suffocate and die. And in John's Gospel, it tells us that when they get to Jesus, they break the other guy's legs. When he gets to Jesus, they recognize he's already dead. And so they don't need to break any bones, which actually helps fulfill what was said about him, that all, he can count all his bones and that, that none were broken. So, so you have this interesting thing. And so instead what they do is they decide to, well, we don't break his leg, we'll just stab him in the heart. Um, they, they, they most likely stab going up and it 
goes up into his, under his ribcage and into his heart. And it says the blood and water flow, indicating that he's dead. So, um, Pilate is surprised that he would be dead already and asks and find out, and yes, he is. And then, uh, then he, he wants the body. Now, anybody ever heard of the swoon theory? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there's several theories that, that people have kind of used um, to, to show that, that maybe Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. Um, maybe he wasn't dead. And that, in fact, that's what this swoon theory is. This idea that, um, that Jesus' body swooned, that it, that it passed out because of an exhaustion, but it wasn't really, really dead. And that... Um, and, and so, it's an interesting theory. Um, it's probably one of the most popular ones, but there's several problems with that. Here, here's a couple of them. One, Jesus was flogged, um, handed to trained executioners and crucified. They'd done this hundreds, if not thousands of times. These, these people, they, they literally would, would study death to know how to take somebody to the brink of death and keep them there as long as they possibly could. And so, that they had done this plenty of times to know um, when a person was dead. They punctured his side. So all this happened. And, and then John tells us that they wrapped him in 75 pounds of spice, um, which would have most likely, you know, after all that he'd gone through, um, suffocated him. Uh, he was placed in a cold tomb sealed by a huge stone covered in an entrance. And there's no, no way anybody could have removed that rock um, having had gone through what he had gone through. So anyway, that's, those are just kind of three, three arguments against this idea of the swoon theories. Jesus was certainly dead. Um, the centurion knew it. The, the soldiers knew it. Pilate knew it. Joseph knew it. Um, even the women knew it. And it says that they, they saw where, he, where they laid him. Now, so think about the Jewish leaders um, seeing his death. And, and what, they, what they picture happening. What they believe is happening. Um, think about the disciples and, and, and these women seeing his death. And what is it they think is happening? I mean, think about their world being turned upside down. Like, the, he's, the, he's the Messiah. The Messiah is not supposed to die. He's supposed to rule and reign and, and take over. He's king. What, how, about, how about you? How do you see this death? What do you see happening here? And what does this temple curtain have to do with any of this. We're going to take a break, and then Ryan is going to come up and talk about that. (laughs) Okay, uh, we'll start the the second half here. Every time I show up here, half of you look new, so I'm not going to assume anyone knows who I am. I remember you now. Um, didn't earlier. I know you. Old reliable right here. Um, anyway, my name is Ryan Vincent. I am on the ministry staff at Sunnybrook. I have an office right down the hallway from these guys. My wife is Rachel. You guys probably know her. Yeah, have an office down the hall from her and same house. So, um, Anyway. I am here to talk tonight about some of the theology that we see in, in this particular section of Mark's Gospel. And uh, 
One of the things I, I, I like to, before I come in and teach, I like to go in and listen to the past several sessions that they, the guys have taught here. Um, and I loved what they did. Um, it was Scott's, I loved all of it. So, But it was Scott's lesson on how to be a good Pharisee. I, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, and one of the things that I love thinking about whenever I'm reading about the Pharisees, or actually, I, I, I really hate that I think this, but it's, it always comes to mind is, wow, you guys are just fools. How could you have not understood what's going on right in front of your face? I, I really believe, I've convinced myself, I believe that were I walking around 2,000 years ago, I would have got it. I mean, I would have seen it. Despite the fact that people that lived with Jesus for three years really didn't get it, I think somehow I would have caught it. And that's a, a bit naive, but we live 2,000 years later, we have the full testimony of Scripture, we have the history of the church to give us the wisdom that we need to understand these things, and yet I still find that every time I open up my Bible, I figure out something new. It's amazing how much I think, well, I've got this, and then I read it, I'm like, wow, I never saw that before. I need to stop saying I got this. It's, it's amazing how many new things I find, and then... One, uh, one, one helpful technique whenever you're reading through the scriptures is whenever there's just a rather insignificant piece, especially in someone as brief and as direct as Mark, uh, it, it's really helpful to say, wow, why did he put that there? Why did he put that there? And so that's verse 38, right? That is the temple. He says this, just, we, we just read it, but here we go again. So Jesus, this is verse 37, Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last. So at his death, when he finally physically expires, it says, and the, turtin, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then he goes back into the death scene. Mark jumps into the, into the temple complex, gives us a brief description of something that happens, and then goes back out to the cross. And the events kind of take place from there. And so we stop and ask, well, what's going on here? What is going on here? And here's a really, really helpful um, question to ask ourselves as we navigate what the, what's going on with the curtain. And it's a simple one. Why did Jesus die? What are, what are, what are, what are, what's kind of like a really basic answer? Why did Jesus die? Kelsey, I'm assuming you know. For God. <laughs> what? Okay, a little less simple. For well, no, I'm not even talking about, like, what is he achieving whenever he dies? Uh, repayment for our sins. Okay. Atonement, substitutionary atonement. Just all these ways of saying he achieves, he, he purchases for us the forgiveness of sins. And that is an entirely orthodox answer. And it's mostly right. But this little detail that Mark gives us says, well, maybe he died for a lot more than that. Maybe forgiveness is part of a big package. Maybe there's a lot more going on when Jesus finally expires, when he offers himself as that substitutionary um, sacrifice for the justification of sinners so that they would be forgiven. All these ways of talking about it. What if there's more going on? And so I want to spend the remainder of our time tonight doing a bit of a topical study on just what is this curtain, why does it matter, and what is Mark saying when he says it's torn. So, where is the curtain in the first place? Anybody know? Where did the curtain show up? Anybody not named Anthony? Separate the inner part, the holy of holies, from the holy place. 
Yes. So, it is, first of all, in the tabernacle. Later on, we know that they just real, like build a nicer tabernacle and they call it the temple. We got a lot of text to read, and we're going to go fast, so I want to assign them. So, Alec, I need, I need probably two or three people so that we can... So, Alec, you get that one, that one, and that one. Okay, I need one more. Anthony, I know you want to. So, you get... Oh, your name starts with an A. You'll be Butler. You'll be Butler. You get two of them in, in John 1, so... And then I'll give you the Revelation 21. Okay, I need one more person. I got you. Who said that? Kelsey, okay. You get Isaiah 56 and John 4. So that way everyone can be, and I'm going to go in this order. So after you read Exodus, go to 1 Kings 8, okay? So read to us. Go to Exodus 26 and read to us. Verses 31 through 33. Let's find out why this curtain even exists in the first place. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, acacia wood, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp, and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. Okay, a couple of things we see here. They're building the tabernacle. This is, this is God giving instructions on how to build this place. And he says there's going to be sections inside the tabernacle. And that most holy place is very, very important. And so we're going to keep you filthy people out of it, and we're going to put up a curtain. Now, there's a number of details about this curtain. First of all, and this might sound weird, but it's got cherubim stitched on it. That will be very important in just a second, I promise. Cherubim, just so we're all on the same page, is one of kind of the ways that the Bible talks about angels. Every time I think of a cherub, I think of like a fat little baby angel. That's really not the picture, but just know that there's cherubim stitched on the curtain. The curtain has two functions. It is, one, to separate humanity from the most holy place. Why do we want to keep humanity out of the most holy place? Hmm? Filthy sinners. Okay, what's another way of describing this? God's presence. This is where God manifests His presence in a very special way on the earth. And there's got to be some separation between humanity. For reason number two, to protect us. <laughs> you walk in all of your sinful glory into the presence of the Lord and you just, you're done. Like, you don't exist. And so he puts up a curtain, though in my mind I'm, I'm asking the question, how does a curtain keep God in and keep us? But, the curtain is there to separate and protect. Those two things are important. And there are angels stitched on it. Now, this, the, the reason that there, I think it's important to, to talk about the angels is because let's talk about um, heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was, all, there was fundamentally, functionally, no difference between heaven and earth in Genesis 1 and 2. Heaven isn't some place. It's all of creation. Heaven is where God is. It's where His presence is. And so, pre-fall, heavens and earth is kind of just a way of saying the place. So, 
in Genesis 1, you have heavens, and I'm indebted to an organization known as the Bible Project for this kind of diagram, heaven and earth. They're the same place. Adam and Eve, just they, they lived in the garden and the very center sanctuary. You're going to see these locations matter. The center sanctuary of the garden was known as Eden, where God was in a very special way. Now, they sin and they have to leave. All of a sudden, heaven, where God is, and earth are separated. Separated by what? cherubim guarding the gates to the garden saying you are no longer fit to be in the righteous presence of our most holy God heaven and earth are now completely distinct but God in his great mercy and his great kindness tells them to build the tabernacle now heaven and earth overlap in one spot in that holy of holies God is again connecting heaven to earth. And what separates them still, on this side of things, is a really thick curtain. That's going to be important when we get to the crucifixion. Um, It's commonly understood that the Jewish people, because of their idolatry, went into exile Later on, later, later on, 722 B.C., the north goes, 586 B.C., the south goes, and they are conquered by foreign armies as a punishment from God. But really, the whole of human existence, beginning at Genesis 3, is in exile. They've been removed from God's presence. They've been kicked out. They've they've been shipped off as a punishment. They cannot be in God's presence. And so the Jews know something about exile here. Um... They build the tabernacle. There's a special place where only on the Day of Atonement can the high priest go in and meet with God. And this is just a small version, a traveling version of what they'll build one day. David wishes he could, but he's got too much blood on his hands. The Lord says, no, you can't do this. But he he purchases the land and he buys all the uh, materials and he draws up the plans for this beautiful, beautiful temple. And David's son Solomon gets to build it. So who is my... Uh, oh, I skipped you on Genesis 3. Read the last verse of Genesis 3, just to get those cherubim in. They're important. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned everywhere to guard the way of the tree of life. Okay. These cherubim on the curtain... They are guarding the garden. They are, they are instruments of separation. Even the ark itself, on the mercy seat, surrounded by cherubim, saying there's something about this that you're not involved with, that you can't interact with. So they build this temple. In 1 Kings 6, there's a description of the temple. And in 1 Kings 6, they build the most holy place, and then they, set the, they, they got a spot for the ark, and they build two gigantic cherubim on either side out of wood, overlay them with gold. Their wings are touching so that the whole place is protected by cherubim. They put the curtain up with the cherubim stitched on it, and then this, they build this beautiful, beautiful temple. Now, uh, no, I don't want to go to you yet. One second. The, the, the temple functions 
um, in a variety of ways. But first of all, I believe that the temple functioned as a place where mercy is demonstrated. I say that because the temple is built on the spot where David took a census um, when he was ruling, and it was altogether inappropriate. And David, the Lord is punishing the nation. The Lord is bringing down calamity, killing people to punish David for his census. And David cries out for mercy at a spot on a threshing floor of a Jebusite on a spot known as Mount Moriah. And it's there that the Lord stops the calamity, extends His mercy and His kindness, and the plague is over. And it's on that very spot that they build the temple. So the temple is a place that has to do with mercy. The temple is clearly, as we see in the tabernacle and then taking place in the temple, a place where sacrifice happens, where sin is atoned for, where um, offerings are given, where worship takes place. The temple is also a place of prayer. The temple is actually a place of prayer in such a way that they would gather in the nations. The temple was intended to attract people to God, even non-Israelites. Gentiles were supposed to be a part of this game from the beginning. Kelsey, could you read Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8? And this is, this is what the people expected the temple to function as. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. Mercy, sacrifice, prayer. With its, with its bent towards the nations, towards bringing them in, the, the, the temple is actually kind of a, a place from which mission happens. And you include more people into the people of God. And then finally, of course, it is the place of God's glory, otherwise known as His presence. And Anthony, could you read to us 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11? Alex, sorry. You know. The letters. First okay, Kings eight ten and eleven. This is after they've built the temple. They're marching the ark into the temple, and then this happens. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So they set the the Ark of the Covenant down on the spot, underneath the cherubim, and then the Lord's glory comes down, and they just start running for their lives. The whole temple fills with smoke. Which tells us this is a very special place. This is where heaven and earth again overlap and intersect. I actually think that the temple does a really good job of achieving Adam's commission 
to go forth and be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and, and basically take the kingdom of heaven out. Adam couldn't do it. And the temple starts to function as this kind of thing that brings in the nations, that makes much of God, where sins are dealt with, where God can be prayed to, and where His presence is. It just sounds like the temple sanctuary sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden to me. And now we've got to deal with what Jesus says about this particular temple. Who's got John 1? Anthony. Okay. Read to us in the... One of my favorite chapters, or the, the prologue of John's Gospel. Read to us verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, read 15 too. John bore witness of Him. And oh, never mind. Nope. <laughs> okay. Dwelt is the word there. The actual word, I mean, they, they Englished it up for us, but the actual word is he tabernacled among them. And he brings the glory of the Father. Jesus is starting, that, that's the first in, uh, instance of him starting to assume the identity, assume the function of this tabernacle, of this temple. Read to me verse 51. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on, upon the Son of Man. Okay, weird verse. Jesus is talking to Philip and Nathaniel, and he tells, and Nathaniel's talking to him, and he's, like, he's really impressed with who Jesus is, because Jesus knows stuff. Okay? And Jesus says, yeah, you're about to see some crazy stuff. Because heaven is going to open, and heaven, and, and the glory of the Lord is going to descend on me. If, you, if that sounds familiar, that's from Genesis 28, when Jacob has a vision, and he sees a ladder going up to heaven, and angels are going up and down the ladder. Heaven and earth intersect in Genesis 28. Heaven and earth intersect, I believe, at the tabernacle in the most holy place, and in the temple in the most holy place, and Jesus is the new tabernacle, and then he just says, and by the way, where heaven and earth intersect, that's going to be me. Like, it's going to happen on me. Okay, what else does he say? Uh, John 4, he's in Samaria, 21 through 24, Kelsey. He's in Samaria, talking with the woman in Samaria. Go. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such sorry, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay. He says, you know, like the fact that people worship at mountains, and he's pointing to her mountain. He's also referencing the temple mount, Mount Zion or Mount Moriah, whatever you want to call it. He says, you know, like how people worship at these locations? About to be irrelevant. There, he, he's changing where worship takes place. He's taking on the functions of the tabernacle himself. He's saying that the Spirit of the Lord, His very presence where heaven and earth intersect, that's going to be on Him. He's saying, I'm removing the fact that you would worship at the temple. We're going to worship differently now. And then in John 7, verses 37 through 39, Alec. 
Seven, uh, he, Jesus is at a feast known as the, uh, the Feast of Booths. Um, and he is just messing with the Jewish leadership. All he's doing is hijacking this festival. And this is the last and greatest day. And, uh, we don't have time to talk about the whole festival, but basically it's seven days long. And on the last day, there's this big water ceremony. They're bringing in water to the city and they're pouring it out as this offering and remembering how God sustained them in the wilderness. And then Jesus says this. Jesus says, out of me will flow rivers of living water. This, uh, tell me what this sounds like. This is back in Genesis 2, describing the Garden of Eden. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And it talks about these four major rivers. Basically, from the sanctuary inside the middle of the garden, that would be Eden, there is some life-giving force that, that nourishes the rest of the garden, and by implication, the rest of the world. And Jesus says, and yeah, all right, that, that all comes from me. In Zechariah 14, one of the most uh, kind of pregnant chapters in the Old Testament, looking forward to this day of the Lord, it says this, in verses 8 and 9, they're talking about that one day when they'll finally be really out of exile, when the Lord will finally vindicate and justify Israel and set the world right and recreate everything. Zechariah says this in 14 verse 8, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, assuming they mean the temple, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and His name one. And every good Jew, much like Scott pointed out, every good Jew would know that. And Jesus comes in and says, yep, that's me. I'm the new tabernacle. I'm the new place where heaven and earth intersect. I'm, the, I'm going to change how you guys worship, and I am the force that gives life. He's, he's really assuming all of the functions of the temple. And then you go ahead and throw a sacrificial atoning death on top of that. He's taken away the need for sacrifice. Jesus is hijacking all of this. So where did I put my marker? There. So Jesus really comes in and says, not that important anymore. Cool, but no longer necessary. This spot where heaven and earth intersect is now at the person of Jesus. And it's probably best seen, if you can go to Revelation 22, when he just, I mean, the, the Bible calls him, he calls himself the new temple, and the Bible constantly references the, to, to the fact that Jesus has replaced all the functions of the temple. Revelation 22, or 21, read verses 22 through 27. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need for the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. 
but there shall be by no means, uh, but they shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, this is describing the recreated, restored heavens and the earth. And it says, the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, which is Jesus' how he's described in the book of Revelation. Here's how it actually, uh, verse uh, chapter 22 begins. I'll just read a couple of verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing, for the healing of the nations. No longer will there, be, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. If that's not a description of the new Garden of Eden, I don't know what is. We ruined it. And there had to be this warrior angel protecting God's presence, protecting us from His presence. And then He, in His great mercy, gives us the tabernacle, and we see this connection between heaven and earth. And then in His great mercy, He gives us the temple, and we have a much similar situation. And we have the temple functioning in all these ways. And in all these ways, Jesus comes and says, yeah, that's, that's the old way, I'm the new way. This all comes through me now. And then we get to John's weird verse. The curtain is torn from top to bottom. I think from the top to bottom issue is just to say this is not a man-made thing. If you look at how thick that curtain is and how high up it was, it's very clear that this is saying this is a divine act. It's torn from top to bottom. So here's, here's how it goes. The curtain's gone. What are the implications for the rest of us? You see how when we talk about the death of Jesus as being something that is a sacrifice that pays for our sins, we're focusing on really just a small, though very, very important, but a small way, a small piece of the whole puzzle of what Jesus came to do. And when that curtain's gone, you see that He now lets heaven and earth overlap a lot more. And he comes and there's a little spot of heaven here where he forgives a man his sins and a bigger spot of heaven here where he miraculously feeds 5,000 people and a spot of heaven there where he restores a man's sight and a spot of heaven there where Anthony becomes a believer and a spot of heaven there where someone whose legs don't work can all of a sudden walk. He's bringing, he's bringing this perfect situation, the, the Eden, he's bringing it back. And with that curtain gone, there's no need to separate. What does the curtain do? It does two things. It separates and it protects. If we no longer need to be separated from God, it's quite clear that we no longer need to be protected from His glory. Which tells me another really important thing about this salvation earned for us at the cross. Is I am now righteous in God's eyes such that I can walk right back into the Garden of Eden, say, see a cherubim, you're no longer necessary, and stand in the presence of God. Which is really, really important for us if we think, wow, I can't wait to get to heaven. It's going to be so good. It's going to be amazing when I finally get to spend time with God and everything's going to be fixed. I think the curtain's already been torn. 
Which is one way of saying this temple is going to be destroyed, and it is. It's torn down about 40 years later. But it's another way of saying, yeah, it's unnecessary. You can live a heavenly existence now. Like, what greater access could I want? Here's, here's my favorite thing to think about. If the center, if, if Eden had God's glory and His presence in some special way, and if that came down at Bethel in Jacob's vision, and if that is in the most holy place of the tabernacle and in the temple, and if Jesus says that He's... What happens when Pentecost takes place? And people are now filled with the Spirit of God. Like, are we now the most holy place? Does heaven and earth intersect in us now? Are we walking little bits of heaven on earth? You see how, like, if we just look at his death as I've punched my ticket to heaven, it's small. But if I say, because of his death, I can live a righteous life now? Because I now exist in the presence of God constantly. Because of his death, we now have this mission to go in and bring all the people, just like in Isaiah 56. Bring them in to this temple. Let me show you what it's like to experience the kingdom and the reign and the rule of God himself. That's Genesis 128. That's what Adam was supposed to do. That's our mission too. This is why I love the church. Not a building. The church. I love but like... We live in the Garden of Eden together. We're a group of people that are filled with the Spirit that get to speak with God and interact with Him in deep, deep fellowship such that a Jew who only had the sanctuary would just give their left arm for. Which is exactly why Jesus says about John the Baptist, yeah, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. So, we get to kind of end our time tonight um, encouraging one another with, you guys studied Hebrews last year, but this is, uh, this is what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Think about the implications of this. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His own flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying, go back home. Your home is the Garden of Eden. Read Genesis 1 and 2. That relationship they had with God, you can have that. In Christ. The curtain is gone. The cherubim have been dismissed. They don't have anything to do anymore. He goes on. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, like, in the end, we are going to have perfection. I'm not so foolish as to believe that like, there's not something better coming when God finally sets everything right, but he is saying, until that day, live like you live in the Garden of Eden. Live like you actually live in God's presence. 
Because every other believer is a most holy place, is the holy of holies, whatever your translation says. That sanctuary, that ark of the covenant, that mercy seat, where God's presence was, where the smoke filled the temple, that's in all of us now. Which should do a whole lot more than just help me like, be sure that I'll be in heaven one day. It helps me think, yeah, I can live a heavenly existence now. And that changes everything. Because now all of a sudden, oh, God counts me righteous enough to be in His presence. Which must mean that I have some ability to actually follow Him, love Him, fulfill what Adam failed to do in Genesis 1.28. And to do what 2 Corinthians 5 says is to live as an ambassador of Christ and to attract other people to this kingdom. It's a whole lot more than just life insurance. I'm going to live like I live in Eden now so that when I get there, it'll just kind of feel normal. Right? Let me pray. And then I don't know what you guys do after this. God, we are grateful for your scriptures. Um, I'm grateful for a group of men and women that see it uh, as worthy of their time and efforts to be at something like this on a Thursday night. Because not only do we have deep fellowship with one another, but we get to encounter you and to learn more about who you are and to fall deeper in love with you. God, I pray that we would never take that for granted. And I pray that we would enjoy your scriptures. Give us hearts that want to know them more. Give us hearts that go to the scriptures to find you. To understand you and your character. And in so doing, we understand the character that's expected of us. We are so grateful for the work that you ordained would take place on the cross. And I pray that we would never grow tired of a story we've heard a thousand times. Surely there is no limit to how much of you we can know and worship. Make us hungry for that. Teach us to live as if we truly are in your presence every day. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Yeah.